basically like the the cartels which control the the favelas one of the things they they, they like to do every weekend is uh they like to put on this massive street party and they are really big there's like two or three thousand people there outside at night um i went i went there with my uh with my ex-girlfriend and we had to leave after a while because she was getting scared of all the 14 year olds walking around with massive machine guns like there literally are like uh, in broad daylight kids walking around with, with ar-15 rifles welcome to the latest podcast from crime world i'm Eamon dylan today we're joined by author nico vorbiev his book Dope World is part travelogue and part analysis of the huge international drugs trade that has touched virtually every part of this planet. The son of Russian academics, he said he refined his English-speaking skills watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He went to university, where instead of studying, he made a lucrative living selling illicit drugs, mostly to his fellow students in the booming rave culture at the time. His drug-dealing career came to an abrupt end one day, and after a year detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, he embarked on a journey to find out the how, why, and where of the illicit drug industry. Basically, I never really fit in that, that well from school because uh, we, we moved around a lot when I was a kid. So um, we moved, lived in America, we lived in Italy, and I, I learned English in America. That's why my accent's a little bit all over the place. Um, so I was always like the new kid in school. So I never, um, I never really fit in that well. And that's sort of like, you know, like outsiders, generally outsiders, we tend to, to gravitate to, to sort of outsider scenes, like sort of like countercultures outside the mainstream, right? So my sort of thing, which I started moving towards when I was in my late teens, so about 17, 18, was um, illegal rave parties, like mainly stuff like, uh, like drum and bass and, and psytrance and stuff. There'd be some party somewhere in the woods or or in an abandoned warehouse, and you'd only get the invite on the night. So you'd, you'd, you'd get a number off, like the page. There would be a page on Facebook with a number on and you'd call the number, and you'd only get the address on the night. So that way the police don't shut it down before everyone has a chance to set, set the speakers up. Uh, so, yeah, I started going to those. I started selling... Um, it was mainly MDMA at that time, MDMA and ecstasy. It's basically the same chemical. Um, so I started selling that rape pies. I was going out every weekend and, you know, it was good. Um, it did it, it did a lot to, to build up my, my self-esteem at the time, made me feel more kind of accepted. Uh, obviously, like with, with MDMA, that's one of the things that happen. You can't you feel like a sort of like a a closeness with with everyone around you and kind of more more empathy and stuff at least for about four hours then you get go back to being a dick and yeah that was that was in that was in bristol which is in the southwest of england and then but then i got into university i got into queen mary university of london which is in east london and i kind of carried on my business there and and there i eventually there were some ups and downs um I've obviously I, I fell in more of the sort of people who you wouldn't want to cross in this business when I got into London. Um, but eventually I was I was kind of scaling up my operation. By the time I got caught, I had like three or four people working for me as well as as runners and stuff like that. And yeah, it all came to a head one night in um, forgot the exact date, but it was early 2013. And I was just on my way to on a night out and I was just going to drop off um, some stuff from my friend, right, on the way. 
And so I was on the tube and I always tell I always tell my friends, don't take anything on the tube. There are dogs on the tube because one of the things the, the Metropolitan Police in London like to do, they like to stand on top of the escalators at the, at the entrance to the metro with their dogs. And then it's like an easy way for them to rack up a lot of arrests and meet their quotas or whatever without really doing much, you know, like police work. You just all they have to do is just stand there and search anyone who looks suspicious. And that day I was kind of in a hurry. And I thought, you know, like, what are the chances that on this particular night, at this particular tube station, there are going to be dogs? And, you know, chun- uh, the, I found out that that chance always exists. Uh, I found that out to my expense and to the expense of a two and a half year sentence of which I did one year. I got out a little bit early for good behavior, but then I had to wear one of those, you know, those electronic bracelets for a while. So I had to be home from seven till seven each day for a couple of months. And just just to backtrack a little bit, I mean, you like I mean, like certainly in 1988 and 1990, the rave culture. I certainly remember what you're talking about in terms of you feeling the love, but um, but there is an economic side to it as well. And can you tell me a bit about that? I mean, there's obviously a good markup. I mean, it wasn't entirely for your self esteem and and you know and making yourself popular at these raves. I mean, there was there was a good living to be made of it. Can you just give me an idea of of kind of what the what the markup was, what the scale of of the economics, how it works at the level you were at yeah sure um i mean at the at the sort of the the lower levels of the the drug industry at least in the in the uk i think ecstasy is or mdma it's probably the most profitable one so um i don't remember how much i got it for exactly but i remember the 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 profit once once you once you've you so you buy an ounce yeah so you buy an ounce for example for, or for 28 grams or you buy I know, like nine ounces at a time, a quarter kilo, and you would ba- you could basically quadruple your investment once you've sold it. And you could probably, uh, if you're just one one person by by themselves, uh, just 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 selling it gram by gram at a party, you could probably get rid of that in at in one night at a at a rave. And then obviously you could also, if you were getting more picking up more than ounce, you could also wholesale it to other dealers for a slightly smaller market. But yeah, MDMA. Back then, at least, that was definitely the most uh, the most profitable illegal drug. Um, something like uh, like uh, cannabis. Cannabis isn't that the markup on cannabis is isn't very big as far as I remember. Um, but the thing is, just just because obviously because just so many people smoke joints that it just becomes more popular just but through sheer numbers. But the actual difference between the cost and the profit is the biggest is in MDMA for sure. And of course, it didn't entirely go smoothly all the time. You mentioned in, in the book, there was one night you were kind of getting into the party vibe while, you know, selling your bits and pieces, so to speak. And yeah, yeah. Uh, you were suddenly, you were robbed and you were stabbed. You were stabbed six times. That was, can't have been a pleasant experience to say the least. Yeah. Um, so basically what happened, uh, the, the, there was this party slightly out in the sticks just outside Bristol. Uh, in the southwest of England, and and the, these these three three guys came up to me, three guys in hoodies, and uh, they're like uh, trying to kind of fish me out, seeing how much I had, seeing if it was kind of worth their time uh, robbing me. Uh, I don't remember exactly how the conversation went, but at some point I clocked uh, that this is a this is a bad situation, and I need to get out of there. So I I pushed one of them out of the way. And then the next thing I know, one of them, my karate kicked me in the side of the head 
And then all I could see was just like, you know how in cartoons, when 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 someone gets hit over the head and they see like little birds and little stars flying around there, that I literally saw little stars flying around my head. So I was like, okay, that's where that came from. Um, so yeah, once um, I had an, I had a knife on me as well, but since I got knocked back, there was quite easy to take my knife off me, and they actually stabbed me with my own knife. Um, it was yeah, so I had about six knife wounds altogether. I think three of them were proper like stabbing when the knife like went in me, and the rest were just slashes. So not as serious, but leaves a cooler scar. Um, the thing is, though, I actually didn't, with all that going on, I actually didn't realize that I got stabbed. Um, first of all, because of all the adrenaline. Um, secondly, just because of just because of the mess, just because if if you've been in a fire, you'll know, like you, you, especially if you're not an experienced fighter. I definitely wasn't an experienced fighter at that time. Like you didn't, you didn't really know what's going on. It's all kind of chaotic. And thirdly, because the knife actually cut the nerve endings in my leg, so I could literally feel no pain. Like even if even if I wanted to, so I actually I didn't realize I'd been stabbed. So obviously I was angry at being robbed, but I still went back to the party and I stayed for a couple of hours, just not realizing that I was just bleeding all over the place. I only realized afterwards when um, when we were going back home and already the sun was coming up, and we're walking to this path down to the down to the train station. I could hear this like squishing sound coming from my shoe. Like, I look down and the whole uh, left side of my body is just red. And what happened was the, the blood had poured all the way like down my leg into my shoe, it filled up the shoe. And that's where that sound was coming from. That's when I thought, okay, maybe I should uh, see someone about this, about this, this, this situation. Um, but the annoying thing is I took, uh, I took a taxi to the hospital and I realized afterwards, if I had called an ambulance, it would have been for free. So you, that was your introduction to the human resource management in the jug trade, I think, and how, how things are sorted out. But look, in, in, in every town in Ireland now, we're starting to see like this crack cocaine is, is making its appearance in Ireland. Um, and presumably this is coming from South America. So you went there as part of your, your odyssey. Um, like what did you like? I mean, I know you're in Brazil. You saw a cocaine lab. You're in in uh, Colombia as well. You met some of the narco gorillas. Like, I mean, what was your your take from that? I mean, obviously, it's completely destabilized some parts of that region. Um, but the the numbers it's just incredible. I mean, you know, it's nine hundred nine hundred dollars, I think, for a kilo of the cocaine in Peru that retails in Dublin for seventy six thousand. So I think that answers the question: Why do people get involved in the drug trade? But what was your experience of what you saw? Like this is obviously well after you're, you've you know you've, you've gone on this this journey of discovery to find out you know what's going on in the drug trade. So tell us a bit about your your trips to South America. Well, one one thing going back to the going back to the the, the markup we were talking about before. Um, so when I was in uh, Rio de Janeiro in Rocinha, which is one of the which is the biggest uh, favela in the city, we went to this um, this the, they call it there a funk party. So basically, like the the cartels which control the the favelas, one of the things they they, they like to do every weekend is uh, not every weekend. Sometimes it's midweek even. They like to put on this massive street party, and they are really big. There is like two or three thousand people there outside at night. Um, I went I went there with my uh, with my ex-girlfriend and we had to leave after a while because she was getting scared of all the 14 year olds walking around with massive machine guns 
It was really like something like, you know, like um, like if you see on TV, like Warzone reports in like some rebel controlled village, like there literally are like uh, in broad daylight kids walking around with with AR-15 rifles or sometimes like those big kind of like Rambo guns with um, like the sort of massive clip on the bottom of it, you know, like a kind of like a Tommy gun, like Al Capone style, but obviously more modern and more advanced. Um, but yeah, they're at those parties, they've also got stalls. Uh, they look like market stores, but there they've got um, pretty much like heroin isn't isn't very big in, in South America, but they've got cocaine, crack, ecstasy, uh, marijuana. They call marijuana maconha there. And the, the coke there, like they had three varieties of coke. They had the cheapest one was, I think, for about two dollars, like medium price one is about five dollars. And the most expensive one was ten dollars. And you have to think that's like that's how much it's it's retailing for. So even if you just went around not buying from a proper drug dealer, like wholesale, you just went around those stalls and you somehow found a way to get that back into Europe. That's still like in, in London, that would cost what, like um, 50, 60 pounds, 50, 60 euros, something like that. So that's you're already kind of uh, six folded. Uh, you've already made a six fold profit just on that. So imagine how much uh, you get if you bought it directly from the source, which would be like uh, Colombia, Bolivia and Peru. And the, the, just the, the scale of the international trade now is, is just enormous. I mean, even, you know, from, from your time, you know, on, on the, the university street, so to speak, uh, that like this week there was a seizure by the, I think the American Coast Guard, it was 1.2 billion uh, worth of cocaine. That was on an operation in the Caribbean. There was another 400 million worth of hash seized in a boat off the Canaries yesterday. Um, and just the week before, um, I wrote a piece about the the seventh guy who's been uh, jailed over the the twenty tons of cocaine that was on the the ship, the MSC Guyane, that docked into um, Philadelphia, one point five billion euro worth of cocaine, and that was there was an Irish organised crime group, the Kinnan organised crime group, are you know suspected of being part of a a kind of a, a, a conglomerate that you know banded together the the Balkans and the, the Moroc mafia. They're the big players, like, you know, the, between them, it's a third of the cocaine in Europe between that particular cartel. Um, to, just to, to to move on, there was the, the Dutch lab as well. This there was, I think it was just um, last week as well, or just at the end of July, the Dutch authorities found a lab that was churning out 100 kilos of meth per day or had the capability of turning out 100 kilos of meth, which I imagine is quite a lot. Now, you met another fellow called Nico in the Netherlands who was doing a, who had a meth lab some time ago or so just tell me a bit about that and about how that operation works and where it all goes from there. Yeah. So basically, um, obviously it's, it's very hard to get an exact figure, you know, because it's not like the records are, are publicly available, but it's been, it's been estimated that about 80% of, uh, ecstasy around the world comes from the Netherlands, actually. And if we're talking about meth as well, like uh, the Netherlands is also the main source of meth in, in Europe. It's not really, meth hasn't gone that popular in Europe as it has in like uh, America, Asia, Australia, but you know, it's it's catching on a little bit and the, the Netherlands is the is the main source. It's not really, I'm not really sure why exactly. It's it's kind of like a random country for it, for it to happen to, um, but it's uh, it's a very established uh, synthetic drug business in the Netherlands there since the since at least the going back to the 70s. 
and yeah there's um it all it also benefits i guess from because it's the same the same channels uh because the netherlands has, has always been a big drug hub as well not only for um for synthetic drugs but also for 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 cocaine because a lot of the cocaine comes through the big ports like uh, like rotterdam or antwerp which is in uh, belgium just across the border and also because they've been uh their big hub for for weed and and hash as well um so they're, so they're using the same the same channels for distribution it's a very global amsterdam is a very global city it's a very connected city so um yeah it's 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 just a, a big big hub for a drug superhighway, so to speak. And like, what was your impression of these these uh, this lab? Or did you get to see it? I got to see the lab when it wasn't in use. So we basically went to a um, it was like a farmhouse in the in the south of the of the Netherlands because where all of this the synthetic drugs are basically made in the south, not not like the Amsterdam or Rotterdam region. They're made like near the border with Belgium, where it's a bit more rural, quiet, out the way. And yeah, I didn't I didn't actually see the the stuff the stuff being made, but they're happy to show it to me when it wasn't uh when it wasn't in use. Um yeah, I bought I bought a mask for it especially. I bought a cast mask because I didn't wanna I couldn't smell anything, but you know, I didn't wanna breathe in any any leftovers they might have left because that's another problem that they have over there, like an environmental problem, because obviously um the drug industry doesn't exactly have rigorous. They don't, they don't care that much about their carbon footprint, put it that way. So um, yeah. they they have a, a problem in some of the parks and the forests in Belgium and the Netherlands. They just have uh, drums of of toxic waste being dumped around. So yeah, I have to be careful. Yeah, I'd imagine that the health and safety uh, officer for the the local drug cartel isn't isn't uh, usually up to scratch on these things. But look, the, the the desire that people have to get drunk, to get zoned out, to get off their heads, whatever is, it seems to be pretty universal. Um, and we're just going to move to Iran, which people wouldn't necessarily associate with kind of hedonistic behavior. But I think you were surprised to find there was a bit of a subculture there. But that wouldn't come to a surprise to a certain amount of Irish people, because in 2001, November 2001, there was a, a bunch of hardy Republic of Ireland football fans who traveled to Tehran for um, a, a World Cup playoff place against Iran. And they were pleasantly surprised to find that there was plenty of offers to be brought to illicit drinks parties where I remember reading about guys were saying that these slabs of, of out-of-date Carlsberg and Heineken you know, would arrive into rooms. Of course, the Iranians are a particularly friendly bunch of people. I think something that you found as well. So... You arrived in this country with, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the West, uh, you know, supposedly a notorious reputation as killjoys. I think, what is it you write about? 94 lashes, I think, for, for possession, simple possession of drugs. But you, you didn't seem to find any problem finding where the where the party was. Yeah, like um, on that, that first weekend I was there, me, um, this other Russian guy, and uh, I think he was Slovenian. This like Slovenian guy. We we went around like looking for um looking for booze and like we didn't really know where to start. I eventually went to a went to a pool hall and we found some guy. And he was like, yeah yeah, just uh, uh come back in about uh in about an hour or two. I'll just finish my game and I'll I'll help you guys out. So I was like, yeah okay sure. And we came back to the pool hall. We didn't think anything real was gonna happen. Um, but yeah, he just drove up on his moped, um, gave us a bag which had a, a six pack of beer on it, 
and and we wanted to we wanted to actually pay him like we assumed that that he was just like selling it to us right but actually it was, he just said oh no welcome to iran and then just drove off so he just gave us this, all this illegal beer for free um so this is the thing so in iran uh, basically, we we would be we would be allowed to 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 drink you and me because the government wouldn't consider us um, Muslims. So like, there's an exception made uh, for 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 Christians. There's uh, there's actually a surprising amount of Jews uh, still living in Iran, and obviously like the Zoroastrians, which is the t- traditional uh, Persian religion, they're all allowed to drink. But that 90, something like 90, I know the number, but like they say 95% of the population are Muslim. And so they're not allowed to drink by, by Sharia law. So to them, like uh, alcohol is basically essentially treated as a treated as a drug. But there's a huge uh, underground business for it. I think almost every other person uh, who I met in Iran has a cheeky drink here and there. Um, sometimes it's uh, it's like this, this in like imported stuff. It's like beer or or whiskey that they've smuggled in through usually through Turkey or Iraq. Uh, sometimes it's like this this home uh, home homegrown hooch, um, this sort of moonshine which they call arak, and uh, Shiraz as well used to be famous for uh, for its wine. Like I think there's even wine like a type of wine like Shirazi wine. Um, obviously that got shut down after the Islamic Revolution, but there's still like sort of an illegal industry there you know like secret grape plantations kind of like kind of like secret poppy fields or cocoa plantations that you'd see in south america or afghanistan but they're just making wine uh like seek secret vineyards so to speak and it's just interesting to see because it's like um it shows you that a lot of the the the, the rules that that different societies have it's just because of their their cultures and their values necessarily it's not because uh, the attitude to, to opium, for example, to Iran, which is like the pre the precursor to making heroin, it's opium is very popular there, and I'd say that opium it's more kind of socially accepted than drinking, even though they're both illegal. Yeah, there's one bit in your book where you described there was a, an an older man or a gentleman. He described it as uh, old man medicine. And he was scraping out the was it the blackened tar in his pipe, which he'd also sell then on to his, yeah, his yeah. pal. So there was a kind of a, a well established, I suppose, routine of smoking opium in certainly that part of Iran. Anyway, I mean, it was it, it, I, I suppose it. Did... And he was going to sell it to his friends, the ashes, because <laughs> apparently the ashes they're like they're like more potent or something. I'm not I'm not sure exactly about, it, but he said he was going to sell sell the ashes to his friends because they can still smoke them. And. Like it's 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 not always advisable though to um, I suppose to test the rules in in some countries. You had a pal who had a pretty tough experience, I think, in Dubai, was it? Yeah. Um, so I uh, one one of my friends who I met in 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 when I was in prison in England, he was another Russian guy. Um, let's call him let's call him Misha. Um, he was in Dubai. He actually flew me over to Dubai once on a his his main thing was fraud, right? So when I when I met him in prison, he was serving five years for fraud and money laundering because he basically um, siphoned off uh, about three million pounds from various British banks by uh, planting a Trojan on their systems. And the way he got caught was uh, one day he, he forgot to turn the encryption on his laptop and he just he just kind of shut his laptop without going through all the proper procedures so that's how they tracked everything to his um his computer address his ip address and that's how he got nicked 
So yeah, his main thing was fraud. And I went to visit him once in, in Dubai. He he booked the tickets for me with uh, stolen credit card details. Um, but yeah, I, afterwards, sometime later, he disappeared for about about six months. Like I, no no one, I hadn't, I hadn't heard anything from him. Um, I tried to hire some of his friends. They didn't get back to me either. And yeah, so it turns out that that he was in prison for smoking weed, but he was he didn't actually smoke weed in in the in the Emirates in in Dubai. He he smoked weed in when he was went back to Russia in Saint Petersburg. And because he 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 went back to Dubai, and then like because it was still like in his system, even that even it being the THC, the chemical from weed being in your system, that's grounds for uh for for arrest so yeah he got he was there for six months and then he got released under a sort of like a general prisoner amnesty and told never to come back to the emirates again i don't think he needed to be told (laughs) that there was um just speaking about uh doing time in in foreign places and i suppose it ties into to your experience as well about how international, I guess, kind of the drug culture is. There's a, a, a chap I know from South Dublin who's a very nice fella, a bit of an artist, mm. um, but he's always he's always been, you know, a hard drug user. But for a time, he was living in Japan, and uh, of all places, he realised that um, he could get a supply of heroin from China uh, back into Tokyo or some part of uh, Japan on a ferry, mm. and he actually did this for a while. And of course, he. Uh, you know, I guess you, you stand out like a sore thumb if you're on the ferry too many times at a big bag. So anyway, he, he got four years in Fushu prison, which oh, is where you, your head is shaved and you do everything by the numbers. And when the whistle blows, you do what you're told. And he spent his working day putting the spring into a, a ballpoint pen. So uh, that that's certainly not a, a, a an advisable route, I think, to, to for I've people to go. But brutal things about enough, Japanese prisons as well. He, he he's actually he's he's a lovely guy, and it's a point you make actually in 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 your book um, where you talk about bad guys aren't born that way. And there's one particular um, I think you describe him as a psychotic killer. Although you do have a, a kind of you have a similar you share something in that you both had a playground fight you mentioned as a turning point in your childhood that put you on a particular path but this guy i think he you you mentioned that he he's he was he was a spanish filipino living in japan um unlike your fight in school where you got suspended for a week he had ended up going to jail because the chap he fought was actually died so and this guy's talents then were were picked up by the yazuka which are the the famously tattooed uh, gangsters in in Japan. So you actually met some of these. You met some of these guys. Like, how did that happen, and how did it go? Um, well, I met um, the, the, these are kind of. Um, so I met that that guy, the, the 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 Filipino guy. I met him actually in the in the Philippines already. Not while he was in Japan. I met him at a, a rehab clinic for uh, for meth users. Um, but in when I was in Japan, um, so. In the in recent years, and I mean like in the last couple of uh, couple of decades, um, there's been a lot of laws passed in Japan, like it's specifically against against gangs and, and stuff. So um, because, like you said, like they're they're famous for their tattoos. Like sometimes, uh, if you if you if you look them up on the internet, they're covered from from uh, head to toe in tattoos, pretty much. So if they're naked, it looks like they're wearing clothes. Um, but one of the one of the laws that that was passed there 
was um, something about a gangster and intimidation. So they can't really be showing off their tattoos in public because it's like, like for example, like if they go into a shop and they're showing off their tattoos, it could be, it could be construed as they're trying to get something, the bully, the shopkeeper, and to give them something for free just by showing their tattoos and showing who they are. So not allowed to show them normally. Uh, the exceptions are places like beaches and uh, public baths. Uh, th- there's onsen things they like to do in Japan, and also like traditional Japanese festivals. So if you want to see, uh, if you want to see DQs, you should go to uh, like I went to the biggest festival in 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 Tokyo, the biggest spring festival. I forgot the the exact name, but it's in it's in the the biggest. Uh, the biggest Shinto temple in the city. Shinto is like the Japanese national religion. And yeah, they're just walking around uh, half naked there, tattoos out and everything. And they're actually quite friendly to, like when it comes to tourists, assuming you don't owe them money or something, they're, they're quite happy to, to, to pose for pictures and stuff. Um, because the the way they do it, the, the Yakuza operate in Japan is they're not like... Um, they're not like like gangs uh, here or like the mafia or things like that. They're not like secret societies. You know what I mean? They're kind of semi-legal organizations. Um, it's just understood that <laughs> those organizations are all front for something else. But on paper, they're legal organizations. You can even look up their offices on uh, on Google Maps and call them up, and like the secretary will pick up, like, oh, hello, Tokyo Crime Syndicate. Um, so they're they're not illegal in and of itself, and I think they like especially at these at these uh these festivals they actually enjoy the attention. So if you want a, a safe way to if you're in Japan you want a safe way to see something you wouldn't normally see you should definitely check out the sort of the national spring festivals especially at the Shinto temples. And meet your your local friendly gangster covered in his tattoos. It sounds unusual. Or, don't get sucked but, into like a card game with them or something. Yes, you might lose a bodily part. They're famous for that, all right. I just to go back to to the 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 the, the man you met in the Philippines. I think Kenny, you refer to him as. Uh, he he had he, he kind of gave you a bit of an insight into Duarte's war on drugs. Um, and again, I suppose you can use it as an example for you know government war on drugs everywhere. I mean, you also mentioned in in Dope World how. Uh, you know, a, a top uh, Turkish um, official was killed in a car crash along with, you know, a member of the PPK and the right wing Grey Wolves who between them were obviously, you know, controlling the the, the drug business or certainly in allowing it to, to, to go ahead. But uh, just in terms of the, the Philippines is a pretty nasty kind of thing that's going on. And you actually witnessed one of the shootings there as well. I mean, that's it's actually how you start off Dope World, I think. Yes. Someone actually got killed outside our restaurant as we were eating. Um, we weren't sure exactly um, if it was specifically a uh, like I've tried I've tried googling the victim's name afterwards and not like it's still been unsolved. Um, so we, we've tr- we've I wasn't sure if it was exactly the the uh, a drug related killing, but the mo like the way he was killed, it's uh the same the same way as a lot of the the drug raid killings so basically what's happening is um a lot of the the hitmen who are being uh hired by these these death squads by pres uh which have basically been authorized by president duterte um to get rid of suspected drug dealers and drug use not even not even like known for sure like not even like convicted but just like suspected so theoretically, what could happen in the Philippines, like say your neighbor doesn't like you, 
he could just call the police and say, yo, this guy's selling meth on his back door. And, you know, like a, a week or two later, you'll get a, a knock on your door from some gentleman in balaclavas. Um, so I think I'm not sure about the exact number because it keep, it's it's hard to, to keep track of. Again, like you can't really. There isn't like a record. Oh, this was specifically a drug related killing authorized by the chief of police or whatever. Like they don't keep records. So it's hard to know exactly how many people have been killed. But the last time I checked, it was something like 30,000 um, 30, uh, Filipinos have been extraditionally executed this way. And one thing that's happening now as well is they've moved on from uh, from just the anti-drug campaign. So they're doing other stuff as well with it, like um, under the guise of of like a war against like the the communist rebels, which they have in some parts of the country. They're using that as an excuse to to shoot, uh, to, to kill um, like trade union leaders and stuff like that in the same way. Like then they just accuse them of being like, communist sympathizers later on so we we also um through a, a local journalist because uh, obviously i can't i couldn't just go around and and just just ask ask people around me you know, i'm not from the philippines i don't know anyone so i had to go through a, a local journalist show me around like a fixer um so he introduced uh, me to a uh, one of the hitmen one of the hired killers and yeah like like he said he he does uh he works for both like the the police and the military and he also does freelance work as well and at that point i think he said he killed something like more than 30 people over his career but anyway he was saying that as well as um the, doing executions he was also being paid uh like just to just to threaten local drug dealers to make sure that they pay their weekly tax to the police and he doesn't if they pay their tax he doesn't he like bullies them around a bit but he doesn't he doesn't kill them and that matches with there's been police reports as well um it was it was declassified you can find it on the internet because it was declassified for a while so i'm sure you can find a pdf somewhere of like the police's own assessment of how well they're doing and uh they've the amount of of crystal meth uh, floating that they estimate that's floating around the black market in the Philippines hasn't re- and crystal meth the main kind of drug there they estimate that hasn't really changed at all so basically like my theory is that there's at least some some uh, factions some some individuals um, in the police and the military who are just using this as an excuse like the anti-drug campaign as an excuse to round up their competition and yeah, that's actually happening uh, around the world as well. So if you go, if you look at somewhere like Mexico as well, right? So in Mexico, there's a big history of that happening, like especially with America, because America gives Mexico loads of money for, and the DA gives Mexico loads of money for like, anti-drug operations. So basically, what happens is that money goes to goes to generals who are being paid by um, by one drug cartel to take out their comp, just arrest their competition. And a couple of this was already after my book came out, but I think a year or two ago, there was like that big scandal where some like two uh, two big time Mexican generals were arrested by the Americans. And one of them actually got released because the Mexican government said, OK, we're going to reveal all the identities of all the undercover TEA agents if you don't let him go. So they, they protected their own as well. So, yeah, it's, it's not just something that's happening in in certain parts of the world. 
Yeah, no, it's a, it's a kind of a cynical politician's approach, all right. And look, just just finally, you, you admit in your book yourself that you you were you were lucky in your time when you were selling ecstasy that um, no one died or suffered any ill effects. I mean, and you know, I, I suppose we've had a little bit of a we, we've kind of joked or kind of taken a relatively lighthearted view, uh, you know, about you know your time in, in in Iran. But like, in in fairness to you, you went and you met a father who lost, I think, was it two sons as a result of taking ecstasy and. Why? Why did you meet? Who was he, and why did you go meet him? Um, well, I thought you know it wouldn't be like it'll be it'll be stupid of me to just 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 pretend. Oh yeah, you know it's just it's just uh, drugs are just you know a bit of fun. There's no real 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 harm that that can that can come from them. When obviously that's not the case. That's not the case. I, I don't think that's necessarily a reason that that drugs should be that should drugs should be illegal because you can't say you can say that about you know like skiing or or boxing or other things like that but you also have to take into account that that it in theory that it, it things can go very very wrong and what happened in this guy's case um, in Ray Lakeman's case both of his sons actually died of ecstasy on the same night they had a dose which was I think they accidentally took six times. Um, the dose that the that's for for a normal human being, right? So they they were found dead over a pub, and what that what that basically goes to show, and this is something that that I'll 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 admit that this this like yeah again like I was lucky that no one had died, but this was something that I I did I did wrong as a as a as a drug dealer is like. You don't really know what's what's in it. Like most drugs, I would say even something like heroin, like because heroin is given as a as a painkiller, dimorphine in, in hospitals. So most drugs under like the controlled circumstances, most drugs can be used safely. Thing is, um uh when when it's being sold by a dealer like me, that's not a controlled circumstance at all. Like a like for example, I could do I could do a a there's a thing called a reagent test where you can uh dip uh, it, it's a, it's basically a chemical that changes color depending what it comes into contact with so you can test whether your drugs are are genuine or not but like for example you can't test the purity of it that way if you wanted to do that you have to send it off to a special lab and you're like most drug dealers aren't going to bother doing that so you never really know how much you're getting so that's that's essentially why people died like either either they overdose so you know too much of a good thing or there's like some sort of um there's some sort of, of of impurities to it. For example, last year in, in Iran, there was like a mass poisoning because, you know, like we talked about how in Iran, alcohol is seen as a drug. So in Iran, there was a mass poisoning. I think something like nearly a thousand people died from drinking moonshine that was contaminated with like, uh, what, what's like pure alcohol called, like meth- methanol or something like that. So it's the same principle. Yeah, 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 yeah it's the same principle. Yeah. So in that in that regard, uh, when I was doing it, I was acting very, uh, very irresponsibly. You know, there's no trading standards in the drug business. So that's that's what that's what I wanted to to kind of illustrate with that. That hey, first of all, yeah, like you know, there 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 can be bad consequence, but I also wanted to show like how these consequences came to be. Look, I mean, there, there's so much in in what we've talked about. I mean, in terms of how the drug trade can debilize destabilized countries you know whether it should be legalized how it's exploited by politicians you know um you know whether you know i mean basically what we have is an 
an unregulated business that's going on. And the fact is the drugs trade is there. And at the moment, there's no regulation. So it's it's people are, are free to do what they want. So you can you, you can stab your competition, as you personally discovered, um, uh, you know, uh, it, it's just really anything goes in that sense. Um, but look. Nico, it's been really interesting to talk to you. I mean, we could go on and on. I think, unfortunately, it, it's uh, it's not a business that's going to go away anytime soon. If anything, it, it's getting bigger. Um, but look, thank you very much for, for joining Prime World and uh, best of luck. Yeah, thanks very much for your time. And uh, yeah, let's do it again sometime. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.